This episode is brought to you by the Women's Network. And so to do that, we had to be sort of stealth, right? No one could really know that what the car was. And so we had tinted windows and it should have been all fine. But Edie kept rolling down the window to, <laughs> to like, she was so happy. It was like, I mean, the greatest thing. She's in her 80s. Like, it's just like an amazing, amazing day. Um, and she kept rolling down and people would touch her hands. And the, the counter-terrorism guy was just getting so stressed out. Um, and would be screaming at us and they'd be like, okay, okay, sorry, sir. We're rolling up her window, we're rolling up her window. And then like 30 seconds would go by and I would hear a noise and she was next to me and she would have done it again. And I have this great picture I can send to you, um, that I just like took a snap to selfie of us. Like the third time I caught her rolling down the window and she just looks just like, like a kid with, you know, her hand in the candy jar. It was just, um, it was a really, really magical day. Hello, everyone, and happy Thanksgiving week. Welcome back to another episode of Redefining Ambition. We have a very special guest this week, and this was by far one of the best interviews I have ever been a part of. You're going to experience a whole range of emotions in the best of ways while listening, and I encourage you to head to our Instagram, at Redefining Ambition, to share your thoughts and reactions. Our guest, Alexia Korberg, has had a truly inspiring and prolific career path thus far, and she's only 36. Alexia has a brilliant legal mind and is an attorney who specializes in civil, commercial, and constitutional litigation. Alexia has litigated many high-profile cases and served on the legal team of United States versus Windsor, which successfully struck down DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act, and legalized same-sex marriage. Alexia made partner at the prestigious New York City-based law firm Paul Weiss and was named a top young lawyer by the American Bar Association. Hope you enjoy the episode, everyone. I am so excited to introduce our next guest on the podcast, someone who is incredibly accomplished at a very young age and someone who I know is going to leave all the listeners with um, feeling a sense of purpose and feeling inspired. So welcome to the podcast, Alexia. Thank you so much. It's really exciting to be in podcast land. Okay. Um, so excited to have you on. Um, you have accomplished so much in your career and I read about Alexia online and reached out because I was so inspired in reading your story and some of the work that you're doing, which we'll get into. So to begin, um, you were someone who made partner at a very prestigious firm in New York City. You graduated from Columbia University undergrad. You worked in finance for a brief period of time. You then went off to Yale Law School. And we'll get into your um, your career in law. But to begin, where did you grow up? Where are you from? And did you ever envision yourself pursuing a career in law? Yeah, so thank you so much for having me. So I grew up in a wealthy suburb of Connecticut with great public schools and white picket fences and all that. 
but for me and my family, there was actually a lot of financial and all other types of in- instability and insecurity and chaos. Every house that we lived in growing up that I can remember was foreclosed on. I have a really distinct memory of my 11th birthday party and the marshals coming that morning to hang a big yellow foreclosed sign on the tree in our front yard and my mom being so embarrassed and having to sort of cancel the party. And so, you know, though I, I hesitate to psychoanalyze myself too much, uh, I think there's no question that my desire for more financial and geographic stability narrowed down some career paths for me. You know, for example, like I, I just didn't have the risk tolerance to be an artist. Uh, to be fair, I also uh, utterly lack artistic talent, so that path was also ruled out. But you know, more more to the point, I, I couldn't have been an entrepreneur. I just did not have that in me. And I also knew growing up that financially supporting my mom was going to be a big part of my future, uh, including having to independently insure her uh, with a pre-existing condition way before the Affordable Care Act. I mean, Obamacare, like really, and the lack thereof really shaped the trajectory of, of my career and my life in sort of meaningful ways. And so I always knew that those financial responsibilities were actually going to be guiding a lot of my decision making for my career, which it has. And, you know, I that's okay. <laughs> I think there's this narrative that we tell young people that they have to prioritize their passions and exploring their passions sort of above all else. Uh, and for many people, that's possible and that's fantastic. But it's also okay if that's not particularly true for you, right? You know, lots of people make uh, career choices that are also oriented around uh, financial stability or taking care of their families and not sort of strictly about what makes your heart beat faster. Um, And I made a series of decisions from college today that were, you know, in the first instance, driven by a desire for financial stability, but have still resulted in me having a career at the age of 36 that gives me really profound joy and meaning and that I am really passionate about. I just had to be really intentional about it along the way. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I think there's uh, another stigma attached, not just when, generally speaking, people are vocal about what their intentions are, which, by the way, is a very personal decision and shouldn't matter as much what others think about that decision that you were going to make. Um, But more specifically, I think there's even more of a stigma when women vocalize that, yes, they are um, also financially driven, that they want... um, financial independence, that they want stability in their life. So thank you so much for sharing that. So you go off to Columbia, uh, you study history, you graduated top of your class. In college, were you set on law school or were you more focused on thinking you wanted to pursue a career in finance? Where did some of your interests lie in college and how did that evolve? You know, when I was in college, I think, I think in the beginning, I was just focused on being so sort of relieved to not be in like the house that I grew up in, in a lot of ways. Uh, It was a really liberating time and a time of, you know, sort of excitement and safety and, um, and exploration for me. Uh, You know, people talk about sort of like the extracurriculars that they do in college. And I, did a lot of those, uh, but in some ways, my my sort of main extracurricular in college for a while before I was even so focused on the career part was was honestly in coming out. Um, you know, I uh, 
I, I was living in New York City and I was going to queer bars and I was breaking up with my very sweet high school boyfriend and I was breaking up with his family as, as one does uh, with relationships of sort of that vintage. And I was going on dates with slightly older women. Um, the first time I kissed a woman uh, was at the L Word season two premiere party. And uh, my first date with a woman was to see Brokeback Mountain in the theater, just to sort of situate this in the pop culture uh, milieu and, and time frame. And, and I was this, I was an extremely risk averse person, which, which we we talked about. And at the time coming out just felt like it's, it, it sort of dwarfed everything. It was the biggest risk imaginable that I could conceive of. My family took the news really poorly. I was scared I would be unhirable. Uh, I knew I wasn't going to be able to get married because it wasn't legal, et cetera. And so one of the, one of the things that I had to do in college is sort of learn that it was important to take some types of risk, right? You know, some risk taking is necessary even, even when you're the type of person for whom risk taking feels especially bad and scary. Um, so, so I did a lot of that in college in addition to the queer bars, which I don't know if I could uh, overemphasize enough uh, how, much, how much a part of my college experience, like the cubby hole uh, famed New York institution was. Um, but in terms of career, I, I was really practical in college, once I had sort of settled down into, into my coming out, uh, I knew that, you know, as we discussed that I had all of these financial responsibilities. And what I basically knew was that I had to figure out immediately upon graduation, how to make the most amount of money possible at that time. And that I could figure out the rest later. So I went into finance because it was, Sort of, it was it was the most lucrative thing that I could imagine as an un, mostly unskilled twenty two year old, uh, and and I sort of I gave myself you know the permission to attend to my responsibilities and save money to sort of enable me to take the relatively modest risks <laughs> that I wanted to take later. So I suspected that I wanted to go to law school but I knew that I would have to work for at least three years first to save enough money to sort of be able to support my mother and I while I was in law school and not making money. Going from a probably more conservative area of Connecticut, um, a very privileged community uh, where I'm sure coming out was not the norm, nor was it accepted going off to college in a very liberal city, more welcoming city, must have really opened your eyes to uh, establishing um, and evolving an identity for yourself. What was that experience like when you um, decided to come out and embrace who you are as a person? And what went into that um, in, in accepting that, even though it wasn't necessarily accepted at home where you grew up, um, here was this brand new life you were building for yourself where you were able to feel more comfortable in who you are. Yeah, you know, I would say that I sort of put it off as long as I possibly could. Uh, I, I was aware of my queerness from fairly early on. I mean, really conscious of it uh, when I was probably around 12 or so and, and sort of unconsciously aware of uh, the fact that my gender identity was 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 perhaps different even earlier than that. And I didn't actually come out until my senior year of college. 
And it's, it's, it's shocking to me even now. And so, and so in, in essence, I think I sort of put it off as long as I possibly could, but the, I had been living my life. I mean, I immersed myself in queer culture immediately. All of my friends were queer way before uh, I was going to the queer bars for myself. I was going as the, you know, as the cool straight friend who was just sort of, you know, such an ally. And, and there just sort of came a point where the tension uh, between how I was like sort of the facade I was constructing and my identity was just too great and the stakes sort of felt uh, too high. And it was really, there was something about being a senior in college and imagining the rest of my life that made me feel, I, I, did, I actually came out sort of the beginning of my senior year, but, but it's such an important time, right? You, you, when you're in going through you know, elementary school, the next stage is middle school. And when you're in middle school, the next stage is high school. And if you're privileged enough that the next stage is college, it still feels like you're on this track and it's okay. And you're sort of in this bubble. And when imagining sort of the precipice uh, and what lies beyond graduation, uh, I think forced me to, to, to really think about the ways in which I was going to take responsibility for my happiness for the rest of my life. And that that the necessary first step was was coming out. I hope listeners are taking note of that. Finding responsibility, taking advantage of your own happiness um, is a, a really great lesson. And I'm sure it was very liberating when you did come out. Were you surprised at the reactions that um, came about when you decided to come out and um vocalize who you are to people? Were you surprised that I'm sure there was more acceptance than you were anticipating? Yeah, there was definitely, you know, from some people who I was expecting them not to react uh, super well, there was there was more acceptance. I mean, it was, it was really a different time. It's funny to say that because I don't feel all that old, uh, but, you know, the sort of early mid 2000s were a really, a really different uh, era. Uh, and so there were there were people who I was really expecting not to be accepting who were, in fact, uh, much better about it than than I thought. So, for example, my my uncle uh, is a uh, very was a very devout Catholic, very politically conservative. I had been arguing politics with him since I was <laughs> a kid. And I remember um, you know, in high school, asking him why if, you know, a, a gay man married uh, or was with the person that they had, you know, sort of, he had partnered his whole life with, how that would affect my uncle's marriage to his wife. Like, was his marriage so vulnerable? You know, I was making that argument way, way before I came out. And his his response was that, of course, it would, because, you know, it, it's it's totally... Um, would sully the entire institution and it's just so abhorrent an idea and and on and on and when I came out he uh, he cried and he said that uh, he 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 guesses he must have been wrong because he knows that I'm a good person and if I can be gay then being gay can't be can't be sort of necessarily and inherently wrong 
And, you know, what's interesting about that, that sort of that what happened with my uncle is to my mind, sort of why we had the real sort of explosion, expansion of LGBTQ rights in the last 20 years. It's because when people think about issues as abstractions, um, it is very easy for them to get dug in. So my uncle not knowing and certainly not loving any gay people, it was easy for him to think that gay people were, were bad, they were other. Um, and to think about, you know, gay people's rights in terms of what his, his world, it's his marriage to, to my aunt, that would hurt his marriage, etc. And when you, what happened when people started really coming out in ways that they never had in previous generations, but in sort of the 2000s, when we started seeing LGBTQ people and, you know, on TV and in pop culture and Ellen, you know, had come out and all of these things, and you have Will and Grace on the TV, is that sort of people realized that they had already known and loved LGBTQ people and they were able to imagine what felt like sort of an abstract debate of rights and perhaps religion versus rights and uh, and freedom versus, you know, rules-based and all of these, these concepts. They were able to imagine them in terms of, well, wow, like my my niece probably wants to get married. Like my marriage was is, was the guiding point in my life. Maybe my niece wants to do that too. Maybe it's like really harmful for my my niece if she can be fired for no other reason than uh, than that she you know happens to be in a relationship with a woman and on. And so, you know, I think that that's why we had such an ex- such a such movement in sort of public opinion on LGBTQ rights that then was followed by and, and very much intertwined with the legal strategy around it. But, you know, I think that if you, if you, LGBTQ people happen to be sort of randomly distributed within families. And I think that that, um, you know, that, that allows people to do, to do this empathy work because these, these rights are not about other people. They're about us. They're about people who could be us if, but for, you know, the sort of quirk of, of what their sexual orientation or identity might be. Uh, and so, you know, I, if there were other things, other sort of differences that we could randomly distribute amongst, you know, amongst families, I think, I think people would feel a lot differently about a whole lot of issues. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, I, wow, 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 wow. Um, were you, just in thinking back to the evolution of um, public acceptance, specifically in the U.S., with regards to LGBTQ plus rights, does it surprise you that we've been able to evolve in the past 10 years to get to the point where we are today? I mean, even in the last 10 years, decade, we've, as a, a society, have had broad acceptance, of course, depending on the geographical location, in an issue that really we haven't seen with a lot of other issues. Normally, it takes far longer to evolve to this point. Yeah, I mean, I think the reason why this happened much more quickly than other periods in this country of rights expansion is just this. It's that it's this notion that people started to come out 
in numbers, you know, it's not that more, there are more queer people necessarily, right? Uh, but it became safer for queer people to come out. And the more that queer people came out and it became safer, the more that others were able to come out. And the more that, that straight folks and cis folks saw, you know, queer people living their lives and in some cases even getting married or living in, you know, partnerships that were state, state uh, sort of respected, and recognized in certain ways and the sky didn't fall. I think that was also helpful too, right? Like it turns out my uncle's marriage to my aunt was unscathed. <laughs> and it took and it took queer people getting married in some ways for him to learn that lesson. Yes. So you um, you take a job in finance. What were your honest thoughts? You, I'm sure we're working very demanding hours as are many of my friends currently working those analyst jobs. Yeah. Did you know when you uh, began in, in this position that this was not going to be a forever thing, that this was pretty temporary and you were just trying to get by for the next couple of years before you decided to head off to law school? I did. I wasn't 100% certain. And at the time... I was still sort of flirting with the idea of perhaps getting a PhD in history, but uh, but actually my my sort of personal need for stability, including geographic stability, counseled against that because so what I saw was um, and and my friends' experience has borne this out on the sort of on the the teaching market the university teaching market, you have very little control over where you're living and there are so few spots and it becomes, you know, just, it's so difficult in that regard. And I knew that for the reasons that we discussed that, that I wouldn't ultimately, um, that that wasn't a good path for me ultimately to pursue. Um, so, but I did, I was pretty sure that I wasn't going to be in finance for more than a few years. I didn't, you know, so how I treated it was like, I, I didn't really know anything about finance. I was a history major in college. I like, I literally double majored in history. I did all of the requirements, including a thesis twice over. Um, I only got credit for the one, but that's how much of a history major I was. I didn't take finance classes. I didn't take business classes. I didn't even take econ 101 until my second semester of senior year. And so I treated my time in finance as like a really cool learning opportunity. I, I sort of treated it as, you know, someone's going to pay me a lot of money to like get an MBA. And, uh, and, and that mindset actually, you know, made the late nights and the long hours uh, much more sort of tenable for me because I just felt like I was learning and I was going to learn and take in as much information as I could. And I knew that I wouldn't be doing it uh, forever. There are so many um, recent graduates, current students, folks who have been in the workforce for um, quite a few years who um, pre-pandemic were, I'm sure, pondering what they, quote, wanted to do with their life. And the pandemic exposed that even more where so many people are now thinking, what am I doing? I'm doing work that I can't necessarily find purpose or meaning in and have put an enormous amount of pressure on themselves to feel like they have to figure it out at a really young age. Did you feel that pressure uh, in feeling like you had to have it all figured out at a very young age? And what advice would you offer to those who are really struggling with figuring out the next direction they want to take their career in? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one thing that I'm working on in my current life, probably my my current most um, difficult project is having grace and empathy for present Alexia, because I have so much empathy and grace for everyone around me, even people who sort of hold views that I think are, are sort of morally abhorrent. I can really get there on empathy. I can empathize with people who think that I should have fewer rights. Um, and I have actually so much empathy in retrospect for early 20s Alexia and mid 20s Alexia and early 30s Alexia who was just trying to figure it out and trying to survive in a lot of ways and trying to answer the big questions of what I was going to do with my life and where I was going to find meaning and and how I was even going to sort of define success or what I wanted and it being so difficult in the moment and never in those moments having grace for myself then. And I don't have grace for myself now. Present Alexia is the person uh, that I am absolutely hardest on, right? And so I have to tell you, as I look back now, I just wish that in the moment I had even sort of an ounce of the empathy and compassion for my younger self than that I have now for, for, you know, while I was younger that I have now for my younger self, because it is really, really hard. Like you, it would be impossible to have it figured out, you know? And even if you think you had it figured out, you would be wrong. You know, like when I, (laughs) that's the thing. I think my greatest, my greatest piece of advice to folks is allow yourself to surprise yourself because you will. And what you, what you think you uh, you want in the moment and what, who you think you are is not necessarily going to be the case. And, you know, so I'll give you an example, which is that when I graduated from, so, so, you know, I go to find, I'm, I go into this job in finance and I save a whole bunch of money to allow me to get through uh, law school, supporting myself and my mother and paying these crazy, personally insuring someone pre-Obamacare with an existing condition was just absolutely, absolutely sort of bananas. But but I, I do this now and I went to law school specifically because I wanted to do LGBTQ impact litigation. And I ended up going to my current law firm, Paul Weiss, which is a uh, a private law firm. We do a whole lot of pro bono work and, and impact litigation like this. Pro bono work being, you know, for free, right? We don't we don't charge our rates when, when we do cases like this. But you know, the rest of our practice is commercial. It's for paying clients. And I went specifically, you know, uh, to work on the Windsor case, which which we can we can talk about. But I was certain that as soon as the case was over. And my loans, my law school loans were paid off. I was going to leave because I knew that I didn't want to be in the private sector. I knew that about myself. And along the way, what I, what I came to realize is that I, I love my practice. This is, this is sort of the best practice possible for my personality. I absolutely love how varied it is. I love that in the morning I'm representing the last abortion clinic in Mississippi. And in the afternoon, I'm representing the board of directors of CBS. 
that just sort of works for my personality in a way that I really not only did not know when I was making decisions about what I wanted to do, but couldn't have known. I am speechless. That is incredible advice. So you graduate from law school. You also interned at Paul Weiss. Uh, You accept a full-time offer. You begin. Uh, What were those first few years like? Did you feel like you were not really sure what you were doing, you were trying to find your your uh, groove. What were those early years post-law school like in adjusting to this new career path? You must have been so excited. Yeah, it was really exciting. It was intimidating. Uh, law schools do not really teach you to be how to be a lawyer, it turns out. And actually, uh, Yale Law School, while it is a very prestigious, nice place, uh, really doesn't doesn't do a great job of teaching you practically how to lawyer. It's, it's sort of a, a joke uh, around there. And, you know, what was funny was I literally came to law school because I'd been interning. I did a lot of internships and I'd been interning at the ACLU LGBTQ project where I'd gotten um, a tip off that they were going, that Paulus was going to file the Windsor case. So then I came to Paul Weiss specifically sort of to work on the Windsor case. And what that meant was that, you know, the three years that I worked on that case uh, were also the three years where I was beginning to learn how to be a lawyer. Um, I always tell incoming law students who I meet to sort of don't worry about being a lawyer because because they won't be one for a while. Um, it takes a few years. And uh, so professionally, I um, I was figuring out how to be a lawyer with, you know, in many ways, like the most important case that I could conceive of in ways that were probably helpful because I just sort of had to figure it out because I didn't have time to uh, get in my head and to become discouraged and think that I'm no good at this because in the way that I think that I might have if the stakes had felt lower, um, I'm very good at telling myself <laughs> that I should, you know, <laughs> I'm very good at discouraging myself, but just given the circumstances, I didn't have um, the opportunity to. So let's talk about the Windsor case. Yeah. Gates versus Windsor, uh, the landmark Supreme Court LGBTQ rights case that essentially legalized same-sex marriage and um, struck DOMA unconstitutional. Before we get into your reaction, it must have been insane when you heard the decision, the 5-4 ruling um, where Kennedy presented the majority opinion. What was the process like arguing before the Supreme Court? RBG was in the room. Um, You were working on some of the most probably important work of this generation, uh, certainly of the decade um, with regards to LGBTQ rights. What was that experience like? Uh, It was a over three year process. And if you wouldn't mind providing a little context about the case for listeners who are unfamiliar. Yeah, so so let's start with the case. We, in our federalist system, we, Uh, We basically had sort of a a grand bargain that certain rights are reserved to the states and certain rights the federal government gets to decide. And in the sort of 
formation of the union, it was really important to folks that the states retained certain rights that they have sort of complete dominion over and the federal government can't get involved in. And historically, one of those rights has always been marriage. It is up to the states to define who gets to marry. And there's actually tremendous diversity among the states in marriage laws. So for example, uh, I can marry my first cousin in New York, but I cannot marry my first cousin in Arkansas. However, state, and once a marriage is legal, states accept those marriages. So Arkansas recognizes when I move to Arkansas that I am legally married to my cousin, even if we couldn't get married in Arkansas. And most importantly, in all instances, the federal government recognizes all marriages as valid. And in fact, the federal government in the history of the United States for all these hundreds of years, the federal government has never passed a law about marriage until the Defense of Marriage Act. And what that law said was that for federal purposes, the federal government was no longer going to recognize all legal valid marriages, but rather would only recognize marriages between a man and a woman. And so what that meant was you could be legally married uh, as my client, Edie Windsor was legally married to her partner of over 44 years, her wife, as, as they, were, they were legally married when Thea passed away. And when that happened, uh, the federal government treated them as legal strangers, which has all sorts of implications. But uh, among the implications was that from a tax perspective, they taxed Edie as if her wife of 44 years was a legal stranger and had just passed on everything that they owned jointly, including their New York apartment. So they weren't terribly wealthy people at all, but they had bought uh, an apartment right off uh, Washington Square Park um, back in the 70s, which had appreciated in value. Wow. So when Thea dies, uh, Edie is faced with a tax bill of hundreds of thousands of dollars. And she actually has to, she was in her 80s and she had to liquidate her retirement savings in order to pay this tax bill that she would not have had to pay were Thea a man or were the Defense of Marriage Act not in existence because New York treated her as married. So, so that is, that's the case. It's about can, can the federal government say that a legal, an otherwise legal marriage is, uh, is not valid or they refuse to recognize it. So, okay, so, so that's, that's the case. Um, and in terms of sort of the experience of litigating it, you know, in retrospect, it feels like it all came down to the Supreme Court. But again, sort of my lived experience of litigating it was also litigating as I learned how to be a lawyer. So, you know, for example, like one of the first legal documents that I have a really distinct memory of writing uh, was a motion in the Windsor case at the very beginning of the case. Um, Congress was defending the law and they refused to answer a question that we had posed to them about the history of discrimination against LGBTQ people because they said in their response that discrimination was too vague a term and they didn't know what it meant. And I just got to write this really snarky motion that included a sentence about how it like simply wasn't plausible that the House of Representatives doesn't understand what the term discrimination means in light of the fact that there are many federal statutes passed by, written by Congress, directly aimed at prohibiting discrimination. See, for example, like the Civil Rights Act. 
Um, and so it was like simply not plausible. So I have so many memories of, you know, the day that we won. It was uh, incredible um, of being in the Supreme Court. I did not argue the case. Uh, only my, my boss at the time uh, argued the case. Supreme Court arguments are very sort of formal affairs. Um, they're very short. They're only like 15 minutes, um, especially in a case like that where you have where you have lots of different sort of sides arguing. Um, the Supreme Court had actually brought in someone extra to argue a new issue that they had raised in case they decided they didn't want to decide the case. It's rather technical, but it was a crowded day. Um, but the, the mood in the court was just electric. There was so much tension. There was this amazing point uh, where Justice Ginsburg was questioning uh, Paul Clement, who is the lawyer who was defending the act. And she said, you know, what you're describing, it doesn't sound like he was saying, you know, it's okay, we'll just have, you know, the federal government doesn't have to recognize these marriages, these, these are just going to be people who, if they happen to live in a state where they can get married, they can get married, and then the federal government doesn't have to recognize it, it's fine. And she said, aren't, aren't you talking about a skin milk marriage? Which like isn't that funny outside of the context, but was just like the greatest laugh line. I mean, it was absolutely like a pandemonium in the court. Like people were laughing so hard because there was just so much tension uh, that like, like people couldn't even carry on. Um, I mean, it was really, really remarkable. And uh, and and the day of the decision itself was remarkable. Where were you when you found out? So I was with Edie. Um, we had decided not to go down to DC because she had a heart condition. Um, she actually had her, her first heart attack just shortly after Thea died uh, related to the death. There's literally a, a, a heart condition called broken heart syndrome. And we just thought it would be sort of too much excitement for her. So we were in New York. We were in uh, Robbie Kaplan, who is the lawyer who actually argued the case. So my boss at the time. Um, we were in her apartment and like everyone else, all we could do, you don't get a heads up what the decision's going to be. All you can do is be online and press refresh on, like, <laughs> on SCOTUS blog is really how it works. And so, you know, we found out along when one time refresh, 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 and then the opinion was there. And, um, and it was, I mean, it was just a really remarkable day. And then we were sort of, we had, we had a bit of time together, uh, President Obama called Edie. Um, I had this really, really funny video, cell phone video, uh, that I thought to take at the time where, um, we all thought that Edie hung up on, on President Obama, but actually he was just on Air Force One and he dropped the call. <laughs> so it was, it was really wild. And then, um, I was in charge of, uh, of, of Edie and I sort of split up and we did all of Edie's press, the two of us uh, that day. And I was in charge of her heart medication. So <laughs> that was a, that was a very important role that I had. And, uh, and then at the end of the day, after we did, you know, a whole, a whole bunch of, of press for her, there was a spontaneous rally uh, out, right outside of Stonewall. Um, I don't know if you've seen, you've seen pictures of the day, but there were just, I mean, thousands of people there and, uh, Edie was, uh, was very, very small. She was less than a hundred pounds and, uh, people would just get so exuberant around her that we were a little bit worried about 
her physical safety, just from people just getting so excited because she was so small and people hug her, would hug her very vigorously. And we were even much more concerned about threats of violence from people who were really opposed to the decision. There was the NYPD was really focused on that. And so um, Edie and I were in a car, in a, in a, in a car, an armored car driven by uh, NYPD uh, like some like anti-terrorism uh, guy and like full like tactical gear. And the plan was to for him to drive us up as close as possible to the sort of roped off area where we would sit while like there would be some speeches. And so to do that, we had to be sort of stealth, right? No one could really know that what the car was. And so we had tinted windows and it should have been all fine. But Edie kept rolling down the window to, <laughs> to like, she was so happy. It was the, I mean, the greatest thing. She's in her eighties. Like, it's just like an amazing, amazing day. Um, and she kept rolling down and people would touch her hands and the, the counter-terrorism guy was just getting so stressed out um, and would be screaming at us. And they'd be like, okay, okay, sorry, sir. We're rolling up her window, we're rolling up her window. And then like 30 seconds would go by and I would hear a noise and she was next to me and she would have done it again. And I have this great picture I can send to you um, that I just like took a snap to selfie of us. Like the third time I caught her rolling down the window and she just looks just like, like a kid with, you know, her hand in the candy jar. It was just, um, it was a really, really uh, magical day. It was a really a, a good day. I have to read this out. Michelle Obama included a segment in her book Becoming of that moment when the decision was made public and the White House was lit up in rainbow colors. And she said that we made our way down a marble staircase and over red carpet and that Malia and I just busted past the agents on duty, neither one of us making contact. And then she said she could see fireflies blinking on the lawn. And there it was, the hum of the public, people whooping, celebrating outside the Iron Gates. I mean, what a magical, special moment in history. It completely changed the lives of so many people across the country and really across the world where we were setting this precedent for this acceptance under the law. Wow. Thank you for sharing that story. That is incredible. I have chills. Oh, yeah. that is yeah. what, a, what a magical moment. So yeah. after that moment where you're like, okay, my work is done. No, <laughs> you set your mind to accomplishing and making waves in this very space. And that's one of the highest, most impactful cases that one could be a part of. I mean, I definitely felt like uh <laughs> Can't out of my thoughts because it's so. <laughs> no, I definitely, I definitely felt like I peaked, um, and I may <laughs> as well uh, never, you know, hang up my uh, my spurs, my keyboard, <laughs> as it were. But actually, you know, the thing about about being a lawyer and the reason why I wanted to do this work is because it really isn't necessarily. It's not just like one case and then you're done. The purpose of having a good Supreme Court decision is so that you can then use, you've made law. And, and one of the things that I am uh, really proudest about is that we litigated Windsor in a way that made it much more difficult for us to win, and I'll explain that, but made the decision much more useful and much more useful for applying in other contexts. You know, we, we discussed earlier how one of the ways in which the law was really like an aberration was that it was a law about marriage when the states get to decide uh, about marriage. 
And so we could have argued that the law was unconstitutional because it infringed on the rights of the states and that sort of sacred in the U.S. divide between the two. And there were many people who actually thought that Chief Justice Roberts might even side with us if we if we did that. Um, but when the Supreme Court decides a case, you know, it's really making law. And so if the Supreme Court, you know, said that the law was unconstitutional because the federal government shouldn't infringe on states' rights, uh, the decision in the case would be sort of of no use to LGBTQ people otherwise, right? We would have been more likely to win the case, but we would not have changed the country. It just would have been, you know, harder for the federal government to pass laws where the state should pass laws. Another thing we could have done is we could have argued and said that the law was unconstitutional because it burdened a fundamental right. So the law recognizes that there are certain rights in the United States that are so important that a law that infringes upon them are necessarily suspect. Uh, the government then has the burden to prove why the law is constitutional. Um, and it turns out that marriage is one of those fundamental rights. You know, but if we had argued that the Defense of Marriage Act was unconstitutional because just marriage is so great and so fundamental, the case would not be useful for LGBTQ people outside of it because marriage is just one of the many ways in which we're discriminated against. So again, we would have been more likely to have won uh, but we wouldn't have changed LGBTQ people's lives meaningfully. And so what we did was we made it as hard for ourselves as, as possible. We argued that the law was unconstitutional because it treated LGBTQ people differently. And for all sorts of technical legal reasons, which um, I do not have time to explain, that's the most difficult position from which to argue a case. Because uh, the law actually recognizes that in most contexts, it's totally fine and permissible to treat people differently. And so the burden is actually on the party challenging the law to prove that there's no conceivable rational reason why you could have the law. It's almost impossible to get a law struck down this way. Um, and that's what we did and we won. And what the decision says, and it's really important, 11 times in the majority decision in Windsor, it says that LGBTQ people have equal dignity. And as such, it is unconstitutional to treat them as lesser. And so now that's a decision you can use. And you can use it, for example, when Mississippi has a law that says that LGBTQ people can't adopt or foster kids, you can take the decision in Windsor that says, wait a minute, LGBTQ people have equal dignity. They have to be treated the same under the law. And you can use that to strike down the law. And so what did I, what did we do after the decision? We went and took our really nifty legal decision and we went and tried to apply it all over the place, right? Um, we tried to use it in the way that, that we had been really careful to use it. And, and people were doing that all over the country. That's sort of the beauty of it. So, so the Windsor decision was about recognizing marriages, but it didn't necessarily, it didn't grant people the affirmative right to marry. If a state wasn't going to allow queer people to marry, the Windsor decision standing alone didn't say that they had to, but it necessarily flowed from it, which actually Scalia's, Justice Scalia's dissent in the Windsor case was, well, now you just gave, gave marriage because there's no other way to read this case, which was funny because it's like, okay, fantastic. That's actually quite helpful. We are now going to sue for the right to marry in the majority of the states. A, a good Supreme Court decision is only sort of as useful as it's going to be in, uh, in creating lots of other, hopefully, you know, good laws. This has been a very difficult year to put it mildly for everyone around the world and there was a lot going on in the political realm where the federal benches where um the judicial appointees became extraordinarily politicized and 
there rightfully so is a lot of concern with uh, the direction of uh, precedent and of where legal decisions are, are headed that are going to affect millions of people. In your own opinion, what are you most concerned about? And what are you most hopeful about if we can also inject any positive news? In 2016, the morning after the election, the thing that I was most concerned about was the courts. I mean, I was devastated. I did the math on how many Supreme Court vacancies, theoretically, President Trump might have the opportunity to fill. It was really bad. It his it, worst case scenario came to pass there. Um, but even more so, I was concerned about all of the other sort of federal appointments that he could make. Under President Obama, the, Sen- the Republican Senate had really blocked and slowed down the appointment process. And so when, um, so, so President Trump was, was able to, and I knew he was going to be able to appoint just a significant number of judges. And what he did was staggering. I mean, he has in many ways sort of remade the judiciary and he was very focused on appointing young judges so that the sort of effect would be the longest. And why this is important is because the vast majority of cases do not go to the Supreme Court. I mean, the Supreme Court is such a vanishingly, sees such a vanishingly small number of cases a year. It is effectively negligible. I mean, you, you, it's like a rounding error. It's doesn't, it doesn't exist for, for our purposes in some ways. Um, and who is actually making the law in the day-to-day is the judges at the district court level um, and then one level above that, which is the uh, the appellate court, the court of appeals level. And, you know, even when you are litigating these like big civil rights cases, they often don't go to the Supreme Court. And so it really matters who the judges are. And, you know, historically, the judicial appointments have not been quite so partisan but President Trump did something really extraordinary. He, he appointed time and time again judges who the American Bar Association said were unqualified to sit on the judiciary. They were unqualified to be judges. Um, and they were unqualified because literally like they hadn't practiced enough law uh, and because they had staked out in certain instances ideological opinions that were not sort of befitting the judiciary. There are people on the on the judiciary now who have worked for or at organizations that the Southern Poverty Law Center has identified as hate groups, especially in the LGBTQ context. So that part is just, it is just really scary. I've got sort of nothing else and nothing else you know, quite to say on that other than it is really scary and I am so grateful that the presidential election went the way that it did because it is really unfathomable to think of another four years of those appointments. But the, these are lifetime appointments. Uh, so the election doesn't change the way in which the judiciary has really transformed in the last four years. In terms of what to be hopeful for, <laughs> the last 15 years have seen a real expansion of rights 
for a number of groups, and especially LGBTQ people. But it has not always been this way. I mean, not very many years ago, we weren't allowed to legally marry. I could not marry my my wife. Our friends who had been together for very long periods of times were, were not allowed to legally wed. And yet they built families together and they had children together and they built community together in times that were just so much darker than these. And so I guess I just feel, I feel hopeful when I think about sort of our resiliency, which is greater than I would have, I would like it to have to be, uh, but, but which I have a lot of faith in. You are working out of your home in New Jersey. You moved from New York to New Jersey. Yeah, you're killing me here. You, you had to say, you had to say New Jersey. It's very difficult for me as a, as a near lifelong New Yorker to take on this New Jersey identity, but okay. The, the transition to work from home and adjusting to that schedule, it has come in so many forms for so many people spanning across many different professions and industries. In law, you're taking calls and depositions and filing motions from this uh, office space. Yeah. <laughs> um, what has this adjustment been and uh you have a toddler at home yeah i basically live on this camera right <laughs> i don't always live at your house jamie but i live i live here um and i can never tell if whoever i'm speaking to can hear the sort of absolute chaos that's happening behind the closed door but yeah i mean it is very difficult uh to to manage everything though you know, uh, b- before I even discussed the myriad ways in which it's difficult, I mean, I just feel so, so incredibly grateful because, I mean, we we're just so privileged going into this as someone who grew up without home security to have to have a home. I mean, it's just incredible to be able to have, you know, four walls um, and a roof that, that we definitely get to stay in at, at this time um, and to have relative job security. Uh, I just feel I, I really I truly cannot articulate how how grateful I am. And so any discussion of the difficulties of full-time learning with a toddler have to be put in that context. But yeah, it is why I mean parenting is wild and difficult in the best of times. Uh, it's wonderful, it's joyous, but it's really, really hard. The uh, the pandemic layer just just sort of you know adds a layer to that. And my wife is is also working full-time. Uh, and so what, what, what happens is like, we have this daughter who she's a year and a half. And this morning she like hauled herself. She's obviously rather small. She's, you know, a year and a half. She managed to like haul herself into like a grown up chair and she turned herself around and she sat in and she announced that she was in a meeting and that everyone should be quiet. <laughs> so I felt like felt a little too seen in that moment. Um, kind of an SNL sketch. Yeah, because you know, it's, I guess I guess we're saying a lot of that. Um, but you know, we are we are we are making it work. There are ways in which it's also it's very difficult, and it's also just really nice to be around her more than I would under uh, other circumstances. Well, I am so excited to continue this conversation in our part two series and want to thank you, Alexia, for joining. In our next episode, we're going to discuss 
diversity in law, where the numbers are headed, more women than men are graduating from law school, and yet the numbers at the top are not reflecting the pace at which we're achieving equality at the ground level. So we'll get into that. We'll get into achieving harmony between your personal and professional endeavors and what's next for you. Thanks, Alexia. Thanks so much for listening to an episode of Redefining Ambition. If you like what you heard, please make sure to subscribe, rate us, tell your friends. And if there's anyone you think we should have on our show, let me know. Join me next Tuesday for a brand new episode of Redefining Ambition. We'll see you all then. Take care, everyone. Thank you.